spending time in the minor prophets has shaped me too. just my dissertation was there and this book coming out is in the minor prophets. And I, I think even as I interact with churches and people at my own church, I think that we are missing some of the truths that are taught in the minor prophets and it's hurting the church. Like we need to teach the prophets that a lot of our people don't understand how to lament that they don't understand how to think about brokenness in the world or the need for God to bring justice and just judgment or or how to grieve and also trust God at the same time, which I think these these prophets balance so beautifully this hope as well as condemnation for doing wrong and this best renewal that we could better than anything we could dream up that's coming. And sometimes I think there's division and heartbreak and real disillusionment in our churches because we don't teach the prophets, friends. I just I just think that there's such need for us to be able to say, how long, O oh Lord, like Habakkuk starts and end with, even if I lose it all, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, just with this gritty faith like Habakkuk. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 258. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is that of our guest for this week. Dr. Taylor Turkington is the founder and the director of a ministry called Bible Equipping, which through its online resources and in-person training, uh, seeks to train and to upskill women to handle God's word with clarity and competency. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Trembling Faith, How a Distressed Prophet Helps Us to Trust God in a Chaotic World, which is drawing themes from the minor prophets of Habakkuk. And in this conversation, we speak about like power dynamics, we speak about better and worse ways to show Christ from the Old Testament, And make sure you listen all the way to the end because towards the end, she does this just like incredible, off-the-cuff, unprepared journey through Habakkuk's view of God's judgment and how that springs us back to Genesis and then all the way to the cross of Christ and the final consummation. It is really encouraging and I might say quite impressive. So make sure that you listen for, for that at the very least. All right, well, I'm so glad that week after week, I get a chance to have conversations with such like stimulating and encouraging people. I, I hope that it benefits you in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Make sure that you're following Expositors Collective on the various social medias. Uh, we have some announcements coming up about in-person training opportunities of our own, and I want you to be able to hear about it there first. All right, here's Dr. Taylor Turkington. All right, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm excited to have Dr. Taylor Turkington. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Good. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Honored to have you. Um, there's, yeah, some some shared passion that I can't wait to explore together. And I hopefully people will enjoy listening and learning. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff to teach. And... That brings me to my first question. When's the first time you taught the Bible in public? 
Oh, you know, Mike, I was trying to think about when it was. I think it was about 20 and I gathered a group of women in my living room because I wanted to teach them the book of Colossians. And I told Uh them they had to come back over the next 10 weeks. And I remember standing up that first week and holding my Bible in the air and talking who knows how long. I had pages of notes. And those women sat there quietly, kindly (laughs) as I definitely communicated that I knew the the secret answers to the Bible. Uh, I don't think I was very clear, but they came back the next week. So praise the Lord for that. I was later, actually, I kind of, I taught for, um, you know, groups of dozens for six years or so. And so then the first time I taught to a group of a couple hundred didn't feel as scary because I'd been teaching for years to smaller groups. But I remember I was assigned Mark three and four. Uh, And I was post-seminary. I was in my post-seminary excitement, less than a year out of seminary, which means I'd forgotten that using big words wasn't always helpful. And I, while I never grew out of studying and being a nerd, fascinating with details of the text, I did learn later not to always put all of those details in there. I look back at that time realizing that women were really gracious with kind feedback, holding their tongues as they just encouraged me as I ended exhausted, having given them everything I'd thought about. Hmm. That's, that's I, to picture you standing up in your living room. Um, did you stand every single evening or did you, <laughs> you know, eventually settle down and meet people at their level? Oh, I think I eventually settled down and met people at the level and started. But at the beginning, I like felt like I had this gravitas as I held the Bible and talked about Colossians. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. Um, our our church, you know, when the, the church was planted, um, you know, all these years ago, started out as like, you know, a, a Bible study in my living room. And I... I I sat the whole time, but I was looking forward to the time, you know, like, what is the critical mass? How many people need to be here to kind of justify me standing up? Because I think there's something yes. different about standing because you're more declaring when you stand and you're kind of sharing uh, when when you sit. And I was like, I want to I want to stand and proclaim one day. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, so how how have you how have you grown as a Bible teacher since since then? You mentioned one thing that you used to do, but you stopped doing. Like you used to use every single bit of theological jargon that you could, and you don't anymore. Right. Is there right. anything else that you have consciously stopped doing? Oh, I hope that there's a lot of things that I have consciously stopped doing as I look back and think of the ways that I need to grow. I mean, I think early on, I, I especially before seminary, before training, I didn't have structure in my my teaching. I was probably a verbal commentary in a lot of ways. And I think the longer that I teach, the more I recognize that I need to study my audience as I study my text, right? Like I want to be thinking well about how do I bring out whatever we want to call it, the the fallen condition, the problem of the text, the heart longing, whatever term you want to use, but to to bring the scriptures that are written for them to recognize that we sit under them and that they are designed to master us, (laughs) that they're moving in our lives, that we proclaim them so that others can live them out rather than just so that we can teach longer, right? (laughs) And um, I think that thinking more about what are the different things that I include and what I don't include for the good of them grasping and understanding people? I mean, part of it is training when we teach, right? We're training people to read the text by the way that we teach, but that doesn't mean we include everything. We're including the pieces that help them learn to read the Bible and help them apply the scriptures. Everything is leveraged for them to live out the truth of what the scriptures say. 
And I think that even more recently in the last year, I've been talking more with other seasoned Bible teachers, women that we get to gather sometimes as we teach at events together. And I've been speaking, especially with some close friends about that I was trained in this methodology that spoke of the preacher as someone who was above those who listened and who handled the word with authority and drama and conviction. And, and I fully believe in the authority of the church and church officers and elders. So don't, don't confuse what I'm saying there. But I think when we're teaching a text, the authority is in the scriptures. And that there have been times that I've been thinking about that I want to make sure that I don't embody a power distance between me and the people that I am teaching, that I am not above the truths that I'm teaching, that, that even as we are intentionally vulnerable, which I was early on, but that's not the same as like an attitude where I want to be close to those who hear and that I am intentionally talking about how I am under the text together. I think part of this comes out of um, like this understanding of how we want to make sure we use how we use our power rightly in the church, right? And anyone who has a microphone has power, whether, not, whether we realize that or not. So how do we use power well and don't misuse power in the church? And we still call to obedience. We still have urgency, but we do it as under shepherds of a gentle and loving savior who still requires holiness. Um, I've been thinking, how do we do strong exhort- exhortations while still using my power as someone who is humble and under the great king. Well, Taylor, you're making me feel really bad about what I was just saying about standing up and and proclaiming. <laughs> That's so, not what I mean. Well, in my own little guilty conscience, I'm like, oh, is that is that what I've been doing? What what are ways that and, and I, I appreciate what you're saying that, you know, you obviously believe in the power of scripture and then even like acknowledging like ordained church officers. And so there is like a a responsibility that is had. How can a person be confident and even authoritative, um, but yet wielding power or even wielding a microphone um, in a way that honors the people and and is not uh, an abusive um, power dynamic? Yeah, and I, and I think I'm still figuring out exactly what this looks like. It's a part of this other conversations and other podcasts that I've been having recently. How do we think well about power? Um, but, but I think that we want to be people who say very strongly what the scripture says, right? We don't underteach what it says, um, which means sometimes correction and rebuke and warnings that are there. But we do it in such a way, even if I'm not a church officer, but if I was doing it in such a way with the authority of the church, but doing it also the way that saying like, but I need the grace of the gospel, just like you, that we make clear that the grace that's provided in the passages that we're teaching is what we desperately sit under as well. And that there isn't a hierarchy in the greater love of God or greater acceptance of God by the person that holds the scripture in the front. And that we think about those who are hearing as people who may be committing the sins that are in the text. And so how, even so even if like I have not really struggled with this, how do I mm. talk about it in a way that says you are offered grace just like I am? We call you to repentance. We call you to the good news of Jesus Christ. So I think it's some of that. And it's, it's considering the culture of your audience that if we think about um, tone, I think is really important that there can be times of urgency and intensity, but also times when we come down where it's not performative but we're also thinking about how to be real with the people we're talking to because we're designed to be teaching within relationship, right? That we're doing this teaching is a gift 
of the body that just like all the other gifts is meant to be done in community, not as one person who knows it all. Yeah. Yeah. You, that ties in with what you mentioned a few minutes ago that you, you tried really hard to, to study the audience as well as studying the text, and, right. and hopefully with, yeah, knowing who you're speaking to that allows you to be yeah gentle in the right places or yeah, would you say gentle or? Yeah. How is, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gentle and just uh, humble and real, I think in the right way, places. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks for bringing us on that journey. What, why is that important to you? Uh, at what, was there a moment when you kind of realized, Ooh, this is something that needs to change? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that there have been some times when I was teaching and finished and realized that uh, I didn't that perhaps that my women who were listening to me didn't feel like it was relatable to me that what they heard was truth and they wanted to live it out but they weren't sure if I was someone who had who struggled like they did or was able to was dealing with the things that they were considering. So even as people as leaders and as shepherds, like how do we think about people who are also um, real about who we are, our own challenges and our need for grace. So I think that was convicting to me. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, what are some like mistakes that maybe that you've made or that are kind of that you've observed? Cause I know that we'll talk about this in a few minutes. Um, you're also involved in like training other ladies to handle God's word. Um, what are the kind of common mistakes that, that you see in, in others? In a gracious way, obviously. Yeah, of course. I love seeing new Bible teachers. And like we're going to talk about, some of my work is working with new Bible teachers. And I yeah. loved getting to train them for, it's been over a decade of getting to train new Bible teachers. But you know, often they did what I did, which is very little structure in our messages. And, and by structure, I don't mean that it always has to be deductive. I think inductive structure is beautiful too. But that we do need to have it a clear pattern for where we're going. Hmm. And that helps people listen and helps people understand what the points that we're making. And, and I think that big ideas are important that we're working towards a point uh, things like that. I think I see others who tangent down rabbit trails that they care about. They see like a little tiny hint of it in the text. And then we get these passionate antidotes that they weave into it, but that actually pull us away from the passage that they're teaching. Yeah. Others, others, I think it has to do with personality, but I, sometimes as I get to know the women that I'm teaching, I can kind of almost guess which way they're going to go. And this other one is that they struggle to leave some of the study behind, that they pack in details regarding the setting of the biblical narrative that are very interesting, but are not the main plots. And they're not close to the tension point where we should probably be bringing emphasis to the narrative rather than just in the setting, you know, they, they because they really love these details. Okay. And my follow-on question is, uh, is what are you doing to help? How are you helping, uh, these, these ladies with these common mistakes on, on either end? Um, yeah. What are you doing to help? And this is setting you up to talk about BibleEquipping.org. Oh, thanks Mike. Yeah. So I lead a ministry called Bible Equipping and we do three things. So we do events at local churches that's training and in Bible interpretation and Bible communication. How do we teach and disciple with the scriptures? And then we do conversations with pastors, um, and women in ministry about how to really think about their ministry, how we can help them. And then the third thing I want to talk about is our cohorts, which I love. So they're seven weeks long, usually on Zoom. The other things like our events are in person, but these cohorts are on Zoom because women are all over the North and South America that are usually in them. 
And it's been a real fun thing to get to be together. So we have two kinds of cohorts. One is our, what we just call our exposition cohorts, where we, we remember the fundamentals of homiletics. How do we teach the scriptures well? How do we move from text to message? We run drills in texts and we practice together in small groups. And we teach in front of each other with an instructor for feedback by the end. So you get feedback, which is not something that women often get when they're teaching the Bible. A healthy, helpful feedback that is encouraging, helps them take the next step of growth. We think that's really important. And so that's one kind. The second kind of cohort we have are called our focus cohorts. So those ones will be a little more advanced and they will focus on a certain genre or a book of the Bible. We just finished a cohort on Old Testament narrative, which has been so fun. How do we teach Old Testament narratives well? How do we think about structure, illustrations, uh, form, and tone when we do a narrative? So that's been a real fun time. Yeah. If I if I had to choose my favorite genre, it would be Old Testament narrative. So really? yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love what you said. And you know, at Expositors Collective, we have yeah, a very similar um, uh, approach also with yeah, teaching for that immediate feedback, because I, I agree. Um, younger, newer um, Bible teachers rarely, if ever, get meaningful feedback. It, it usually is along the lines of, hey, good job, or or the the generic, that really blessed me. Um, right. But, but to say like, it was good, and here's why, or here's the things that I thought were faithful to the text, this is what was, was good, and then here's two things for you to work on. Um, so what is what what goes into good feedback? Um, I've found in Christian circles, we we care about the preacher themselves. We want them to be encouraged. And so our feedback tends to be broad, generic, and it includes things like that bless me or I love your heart yeah. or you know, thanks for being faithful. Um, but not getting to the nitty gritty of right. here's what was good and here's what needs improvement. So what goes into meaningful feedback? How do you yeah. and others give the feedback that these Bible teachers need? Yeah. So we have a feedback guide that I think is helpful. So we don't get just the, I love your heart. I was so yeah. encouraged, you know, which is great. And we want positive encouragement too. But I think we think about our goals when, that we talk about in the cohorts are like, we want to be faithful to the text, that the power of what we say is not, if we're, if we're making up the truth and it's not going to be what we should be talking about. So are we faithful to the text? Do we see the main point of this text in the main point of your message here? Do we see the structure of the text reflected well in your structure? Were we able to, were you able to place us well? Meaning like, as you taught, could you place us in the passage so that we were able to understand did you, I mean, the historic understanding of exposition, we think about explanation, illustration, application, those three facets of teaching, did they illustrate, because illustration has helped us grasp the, the, the abstract, right? It brings the abstract to the concrete. So do they do that not to entertain, but to help us better understand? Do they explain as we think about literary, historical, and biblical context, was that there? Did they bring us to the good news of Jesus Christ in an appropriate way from the text? Did they teach the application in such a way that helped us understand that we obey out of an overflow of the grace of God because of the work of Jesus? We don't apply just to try to, we ourselves work ourselves into obedience, right? We can't accomplish holiness without the help of God. So those are some of the questions that are on my feedback form that all of the women fill out for each other. We also, though, you know, talk about delivery and introductions and those kinds of things, too. Yeah. And and even, yeah, 
with all those things, those first things that you listed out, if we have all of those, but then it's if it's delivered poorly or if it's delivered yeah. in a way that is unengaging, then that's it's again, you have the you have the groceries, but they're not they're not making it into the fridge or it's yeah. not going into the the yeah. So each of those are important and Lord Lord give us grace. <laughs> Help. Yes. Uh, so I've to to pivot a little bit, um maybe you mentioned like the Old Testament uh, narratives, which I'm excited about. I've, I've noticed like in your soon to be published writings and in the work that you've put out, so much of it is based around the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible. So you seem to be a fellow um, Old Testament uh, enthusiast. Uh, what, what brought you to the first half of the Bible? Man, I think uh, I love, I think I've loved exploring the Old Testament even early on, but I would say that the turning point was in Hebrew class in seminary with Professor Jan Verbruggen. He still teaches at Western Seminary, and he made the text come alive. It, it sounds silly. I know people complain about Hebrew classes, but I sat there and felt like this is the most beautiful thing I've seen. And we see the character of God in these writings and in the, the work of God. And I think I love languages too. So being able to do that with Hebrew, with Jan was just a joy. And I think some of these things are caught, right? We don't, it's not just teaching, but we catch it from other people. And so that's one of the things that I caught in my seminary training time. Spending time in the Minor Prophets has shaped me too. Just my dissertation was there and this book coming out is in the Minor Prophets. And I I think even as I interact with churches and people in my own church, I think that we are missing some of the truths that are taught in the Minor Prophets and it's hurting the church. Like we need to teach the prophets. But a lot of our people don't understand how to lament, that they don't understand how to think about brokenness in the world or the need for God to bring justice and just judgment or or how to grieve and also trust God at the same time, which I think these these prophets balance so beautifully, this cope as well as condemnation for doing wrong and this best renewal that we could better than anything we could dream up that's coming. And sometimes I think there's division and heartbreak and real disillusionment in our churches because we don't teach the prophets, friends. I just I just think that there's such need for us to be able to say, how long, O oh Lord, like Habakkuk starts and end with, even if I lose it all, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, just with this gritty faith like Habakkuk. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thanks. And, and, as you spoke previously, you talked about how you want those who attend like the Bible equipping events, you want them to like show Christ in an appropriate way from, from the text um, in, in these books of the prophets or in the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I think that there's probably like better and worse ways to show Christ from the text. Um, could you talk to us about what you think the, the best ways to proclaim the gospel from the Old Testament are? Oh, you know, I think there are multiple good ways and that the best way depends on the passage that you're using, right? That it's the thing that's the easiest and the most natural from the text that you're in. I tell my students that we look at every passage and ask the question how it relates to the work of Christ. So we're not trying to put hmm. Jesus into text as in some strange manner, um, but we are recognizing that we know what happens. We are not outside of the story. And so we can read every text, understanding where it's going and how it relates to 
to the work of Christ because we believe that that's where the crux of redemptive history is, the work of Christ there. So tools like biblical theological themes are really helpful. New Testament quotations, typology, contrasts, ways of analogy, and walking through redemptive history. And I mean, you could look more in Sidney Gordonis's work, the, the stuff that I've really done research on, including Brian Chappell's ways. And how do we think about, um, you know, the way that Brian talks about fallen condition or redemptive solution, or he uses the term gospel glasses and unlimited grace. But that same idea of how do we see the God providing the thing that we cannot provide for ourselves in the text, that God is gracious to his people, and that that is what he's ultimately does in Christ. But we, what's important, too, is that sometimes people that are proclaiming Christ in the Old Testament, the criticism that comes to us is that we are not teaching the passage in its original context. And so we have to be faithful that we, we're not just making felines to Christ, but we are teaching it here that there are truths that God has for us related to the literary and historical context, and ultimately that biblical context, right, that bigger picture of history that this text is in. But we work hard to teach what God has said in that context, too. And we don't do it the same way every time. I think that's sometimes when it gets done not well, so we're in a preaching series and we do it the same way each time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it becomes predictable. It's okay. And right. here, here it comes. Here it comes. I see that glint in the eye. It's coming. Yes, exactly. And of course, there's a glint because we're so excited to talk about Christ who lived, died and rose again. And then we teach like that's true. But like in Habakkuk, there are some really helpful New Testament references that I think that can be helpful for us as long as we teach it in the original context first, but then see how the New Testament authors were, were building on what Habakkuk was saying. But I think redemptive history is a way that I would also do it in Habakkuk. But Habakkuk also has this incredibly dramatic imagery about judgment for abusers of people, people who mistreat other people. And there's also these incredible descriptions of power and how God delivers his people. And so there's these biblical theological themes here that we can follow about the power of God and about the judgment of God that is going to interact with Christ. And I think that those... Under, like meet us, those of us who's faced injustice or hardship, and we say, well, those are related to Christ inextricably. And so we go through what he has done when we talk about those themes. Yeah. Now, not to put you on the spot, but but could you maybe in, in the next minute, like kind of maybe like trace out that redemptive historical theme, like of of judgment or how how does that work? Like I'm I have Habakkuk in front of me right now. And I think that there's maybe a a, a sloppy way to to do that, which is almost kind of more like along the lines of like word association. Um mm. whereas, you know, 215, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out your wrath. Well, I know you know, that Christ on the cross had, had the cup of wrath poured out upon him. And then, and then from there, boom, it's just, we're, we're jumping from the one to the other, or as I think Chapel calls it, hopscotching to Golgotha. Now, I think that's better than nothing, but Mm -hmm. um, how is a more responsible way to, to look at the theme of judgment and bring us to the good news? Yeah, no, that's that's really good. So, so in that second half of chapter two, so verses six through twenty is a woe song, right? We see these five woes coming down. So we would teach it in context first. We like this these boulders of woe coming down, and God doesn't mention specifically the Babylonians that are coming. So I think there's this implication of it's both the Babylonians that are coming that are going to be mistreating people, but it's also these wealthy Judeans, people of Judah, who are dishonoring the Lord and mistreating people. Under 
uh, you know, under the the king at the time, there was a there was a lot of mistreatment of people. We see that even as Habakkuk in one four talks about the wicked surround the righteous, and so here we see this woe song that's actually designed to encourage God's people, like a judgment song that's meant to encourage. Like we would never sing this in our churches, but they would sing it. It's got this pattern for them to realize that God is going to bring judgment, that He is gonna those who would steal from them are gonna get plundered. That there's this reversal that's coming. And I think that we think well about judgment by realizing that this is the judgment that is ultimately going to come across those who abuse others, that mistreat others. And we would follow that theme, recognizing it from the very beginning that sin has brought judgment that was going to come. We would talk about Genesis and talk about the coming of judgment because of the fall. We would talk about the continuation of understanding judgment, even as we see the different covenants come. We think about the covenant of Moses, with Moses, Israel, and we think about that there's this place to come to holiness in relationship with God because because he's rescued out of Egypt, but there's also consequences for your sin. You see that throughout Deuteronomy. And that even their decisions in the book of Kings and their decisions to turn away from the Lord and the warning from the prophets, there's judgment coming because you disobey God and the truth of who he is. And we would come into the New Testament and recognize again, even as God did bring judgment, brought them into exile, which is coming from the book of Habakkuk, return. But now we're here in with Christ and he is talking, he talks about judgment. And I would probably pull out some of those passages about him talking about coming judgment and then realizing that you and I are also under judgment. We have not treated everyone well. If I was teaching this text, I would not leave us clean from here. Being like, you and I have probably used our own privilege, our power to get what we want and hurt other people too. Even if like our bullying, our words have bring so much more shame than we recognize. And there's, I love that the way that it talks about shame, I don't love it, but I mean, it's important mm-hmm. in this text In verses 15 and on this 16, it's the shame that's come because of them. And I would talk about the judgment that then comes on Christ. Like you said, like this wrath that does, but I do think it does come on Christ. And we would talk about how the only people that are not going to receive the judgment deserved to them are those who are in Christ because of what Christ has done, taking that judgment in our place, the substitutionary atonement. And I would move on and talk. I mean, I would go all the way to Revelation because we have to keep talking about judgment because the people that we interact with today who are mistreating other people or some of us even who are believers, but who just don't really care maybe about the way that we can hurt people with our words, with our actions, with our financial power, that we are held accountable to the Lord and we're forgiven in Christ, but he still calls us not to live this way. This this text also has this beautiful thing in the very middle of it that some would say it's even the center of the minor prophets in verse 14, where it yeah. says, for the Lord will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so somehow this theme of judgment is also tied to the glory of God covering the sea. And the only way that works is when we think about the cross and resurrection of Jesus, right? Because because of judgment, then glory is going to spread. Okay, I'm on my my soapbox here. But, and that's just, we have to understand that it's good that God is going to bring judge judgment in a good way to bring justice and that his glory comes as a result of it. I did not prep you for that. And that was the most encouraging. That was awesome. Thank you. I mean, I I didn't want to, like, I knew you've written a book on this, so you'd probably be able to, at the drop of a hat, to do what you just did. But but thank thank you for that. And I appreciate how you were even saying, you know, my my sloppy application of verse 15 to, to Gethsemane, like, that's not 
wrong. It's just it's just not not true enough. Or there's there's yes. more that could be said before yes. and after. And I think that when when preachers we just discover, let's say, the Christ-centered hermeneutic, um, we just go there and then no further. Um, but mm-hmm. I know that we can kind of zoom the camera back and then see this notion of judgment. Um, from a bigger, broader picture. And it doesn't take away from it. It actually expands it. It makes it richer, more nutritious, yeah. more encouraging. Absolutely. And I think that that's the, the, our first hints sometimes. We're like, oh, I think this is how we get to Jesus. Those aren't necessarily wrong, but we need to think more broadly. And that's why I think it's really helpful for us to think through the ways. Like I actually list out, you know, are we thinking through themes here? Am I thinking through typology here? Am mm. I thinking through a contrast here? If that's true, how do I do the fullness of this method so that I'm doing it in a healthy way that helps the people that I'm teach because they're teach they're learning how to read their Bible from you as you're teaching, right? So we're teaching them for help healthy hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. So how do we do this full method as we are teaching? Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard um, uh, Tim Keller speak about how it's a, it's an instinct and it's like, well, yes, it's an instinct. And there's also a checklist, you know, yeah. or and, like, and I think it becomes instinctual after you like maybe deliberately thoughtfully think through these, this, this rubric or these systems of, of ways of, of viewing passages. You know, again, like I think you mentioned, you know, the New Testament, New Testament quotation or, or mm-hmm. these like, until it's an instinct, maybe let's work on those repetitions of thinking through each and every passage through a grid like that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's it's an, really it's helpful. an instinct for you, Tim. It's not an instinct for the, for the rest of us. <laughs> right, and it's, right. and it's, and it's not an instinct for, for younger or newer teachers. And so yeah. if, if all we do is just say, you just kind of look at the passage and you just kind of know, um, mm-hmm. again, maybe for some people that's the answer. And then for others, it's not, sorry, I cut you off. No, I think that's great. And I think that we, the instinct does grow because sometimes we begin to use those methods without realizing it, yeah. right? We begin to use them subconsciously. And I think in default, you can always walk through redemptive history. Like, so I did it more thematically there, but walking through the history, we need to be able to repeat the history of the Bible so well that we can know where we're at and how that is, how that relates to the coming and work of Christ. And so that is really important for us to keep doing. And I think that can become instinctual. Yeah. Hey, are you sure I can't sign up for one of your workshops? <laughs> Sorry, Mike, we're doing it with, uh, we're doing it with women, but we do love to talk to pastors and men about, with conversations about how they can equip women in their churches. So. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll chase you up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, final question. So like how, again, how are you trying to improve. So we've, we've, yeah. we've heard about like your improvement in the past and then even now how you're trying to help others improve. Um, have you arrived? Uh, no, is there anything? <laughs> you never arrive. Yeah. Never arrive. We always need help. We always need more feedback. We always need encouragement and help from others. Um, I would say that the thing that I've been thinking about is really tension in the, in my messages. Hmm. So, you know, we've been talking about tension and, um, and I've been playing with it for years, but I've noticed even more this need to teach inductively, especially in narratives. Part of this is coming out of my ultimate narrative cohort. So we usually when we're, when I teach, um, 
epistles and such. I'm, we're teaching more deductively, telling people where we're going before we get there. But then when I'm teaching in something like a narrative, we're teaching inductively where we don't give away our structure at early or our main point. We're building tension to a climax, modeling after the plot of the passage. So being more married to the text, we're trying to model the form that God incredibly uses these different genres. And so it changes the way we teach them. Anyway, so I've just been thinking more about how do I hold tension better, uh, making us feel the need for this truth, which I often try to do in my introduction, but holding it longer than just my introduction, holding it through further. So uncovering that longing and the need for what the scripture is going to plate for us that I just get to serve it later on Mm -hmm. in the message. So, and I think especially as our culture changes, and people have shorter attention spans, this need for holding tension makes sense to me for people that are listening. Like they need to be able to understand their deep need for the truth that's coming in the text. And so there's um, Lucas O'Neill's book, Preaching to be Heard, talks about this tension. Steve Matthewson's The Art of Preaching, Old Testament Narrative. These are ones that have been in my head recently as I've been thinking about this kind of idea. Well, you speak about how our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And, and then you said, and so we need longer periods of tension. Yeah. I almost was expecting you to say our attention spans are getting shorter. So we need to have little soft, chewable bites for people to take in. Yeah. Why, so I, why not? Uh-huh. So I think that if we're going to teach for 30 minutes or more or around there, then we need people to have the buy-in to continue to listen to us. So if we're going to do a short attention span and we're going to teach for 10 minutes or less, then yeah, sure, you can give them the short nuggets. But if you're going to teach for 30 minutes, they need buy-in. And that buy-in is that longer tension of you building this like need of them realizing more and more as you unfold your message that they need help with whatever you're working on, whatever you're teaching, whatever the fallen condition, longing, need, problem of the text is. And a lot of these narratives do that, right? Like you see this problem and the tension rises and you're like, oh no, what is going to happen? And the tension keeps moving. And then all of a sudden we see this change in the text and the work of God and the provision of God and, and the resolution providing more of those truths for us. And I think with that, that doesn't mean that I'm teaching a different truth or anything, but it means that I'm probably spending more time raising the surfacing the need for the truth that's coming in the passage. And you can do this well in, in epistles and, and more didactic literature. You can. I think it's just more natural to be done in narratives or, or even um, poetry. Yes. Yeah, surfacing the truth that's coming. Is that what you said? Surfacing the the need for the truth ah. that's coming, and then it, and then the, and then surfacing the truth that's coming in the climax of the of the narrative and the climax of the message. Yeah, yeah, I love that phrase. That's uh, that's that's good. Okay, well, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. I've loved it. I, I have a feeling when people listen to it, they're gonna uh, like it as well. Uh, you, we've been talking about Habakkuk. We've been referencing that you've written on it, um, but. What exactly? When's it coming out? Who's publishing it? Where can we get uh, this alluded to? Actually, we've been doing that. We've been building tension for this <laughs> reveal. Yeah. What have you written? Is. When? When can we get it? Thanks, Mike. Yeah. So my book is called Trembling Faith: How a Distress 
a distressed prophet helps us trust God in a chaotic world. And it's about the book of Habakkuk. And it's really how do we think about the brokenness of this world, look it in the face, and then live with real trust. And so, and I think it'd be really helpful for teachers and preachers because it's helping us think well about how do we apply them unto prophets? How do we help our people read and apply them? Because I think that this is one of those books that has more of the gold on the edges. They don't get the read time mm-hmm. that they deserve. It is available coming out February 28th. So you can pre-order it now wherever you buy books, but it'll come out in February. All right. And we'll have a link to pre-order in the show notes. And uh, I look forward to getting a copy as well. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Turkington. I've appreciated your time. And to the listeners, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Mike. Okay, well, thanks so much for that. Thanks to Dr. Turkington. Thanks to you for listening all the way to the end. I enjoyed it. I'm sure that you did as well. So let's continue the conversation. Uh, At the beginning, I mentioned our outward facing public social media stuff. Um, But also, we have a a private Facebook online community. You can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash expositors collective. It's a private group. And we talk about episodes, we get recommendations for commentaries, we go back and forth about various aspects of the teaching and preaching ministry that God's called us to. Uh, Actually, uh, Taylor's on there as well, too. So if you want to ask any follow up questions or find out more resources about Habakkuk or any of these things, join our private Facebook community to continue the conversation. Hey, since you're listening, one last ask. I don't do this very often, but the podcast is, yeah, it's doing really well. It's going far and wide. It can go even farther and wider. If you could write a review uh, on the Apple Podcast Store, uh, you have to do it through the actual Apple Podcast app and you get in there. It's kind of a, it takes a minute or two to kind of figure out how to actually write the review. But if you could not only leave a five-star review, but also write a sentence or two that just says how this has helped you and why other preachers or Bible study leaders or teachers should be listening to this as well. It makes it rise in the algorithms and it will help more people teach the Bible better. And that's what it's all about, right? So I think we only got like one review in the past year or so, and it's probably because I'm not asking enough. So if you've made it this far, then certainly you could take a minute and write a written review. Personally, I would really, really appreciate it. Okay. Well, hey, next week, there is a killer episode. Not one, but two guests. We have Dr. Ian Clary and Shane Angland are speaking with me about Augustine and how he is a preacher and a pastor that we should be learning from. So make sure you're subscribed so that next Tuesday, that episode, Learning from Pastor Augustine, will automatically be delivered to your device. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. 